0: When someone's murdered, we often go to those closest to them first, the husband, the wife, a lover. But where do you search when the person closest to that victim is thousands of miles away when the homicide takes place? I'm M. William Phelps, an investigative journalist and author of more than 40 true crime books. I've dedicated the past 20 years of my life to helping families of the missing and murdered. Join me. We're crossing the line. These days, it can feel as though society puts the act of murder on a scale of depravity. But when you come down to it, murder takes a life. It's horrific, no matter the circumstances. Some are just more grisly than others, of course. Today, we'll take a look at one of those cases. We'll even talk to a crime analyst friend of mine, Dina Dahl, who covered every twist and turn in this story in real time as it unfolded. But it begins on June 28, 2015. Dr. Teresa Sievers is found bludgeoned to death in her home, a hammer lying on the floor next to where her body lay in a pool of blood. Dr. Sievers seemingly didn't have an enemy in the world and was, by all accounts, quote, a Christ-centered woman who gave of herself more than she got back. But how she was killed was no doubt a crime of passion, and it was personal. Factually, about 50% of all murdered women are killed by romantic partners. What's more, a CDC study found that, quote, domestic violence is a major cause of death for women. So it only feels natural for our heads to turn and look towards the husband. But on that day, Teresa's husband, Mark Seavers, is actually a three-hour plane ride away in another state. Interestingly enough, one law enforcement investigator would later say, this was almost the perfect crime. I kind of find that statement ironic. Teresa and Mark Severs were parents to two daughters. They lived in a gorgeous, spacious, white stucco home they had built on the northeastern side of Bonita Springs, Florida, which is in the Pashi area of the state near Naples. You know, we're talking plush green lawn, white fence surrounding the backyard. Neighbors were friendly, community-centered. Everybody has seen a neighborhood like this. Teresa was 46, vibrant, with reddish-blonde hair and hazel eyes. She practiced holistic medicine at a wellness clinic, the Restorative Health and Healing Center. Teresa was the breadwinner of the family. Her husband did odd jobs around the practice and took care of the children. She had grown up in Connecticut and graduated from med school in 1996, completing her residency at the University of Florida. But hearing what her sister said in 2016 in an interview she gave to the local news press newspaper gives you a better sense of who Teresa was as a person. And I'm going to have my producer extraordinaire, Catherine Law, who you'll hear from time to time, read what the sister said.
1: She was this incredibly gifted, brilliant doctor and this incredibly Christ-like person. She just lived that way. She'd give you the shirt off her back. She'd help strangers. She'd get up at two in the morning to care for homeless people. But yet she'd put on her five-inch heels and curl her hair, and she'd be swearing like a sailor and drinking.
0: So in late 2015, Teresa, her husband Mark, and their two daughters take a trip from their Florida home to New York and Connecticut for a family reunion. At the end of that weekend, Teresa returns home by herself leaving her husband and kids in Connecticut. For Teresa, her patients come first and she had several important appointments awaiting her on that Monday morning. Now, that Sunday night, she's alone at home. When Teresa doesn't show up for work the next morning, June 29th, her office staff almost immediately know something is wrong. So they contact Mark, her husband. Since he's still in Connecticut, he asks a family friend to go over there and check on her. 911, when is your emergency?
2: Uh, I'm at, uh, at a friend's house. Uh, he's out of town, and I came here to check on his wife, and she's dead on the floor. Okay. Uh, the address okay.
0: Is- so here's what we know right. Teresa Seavers was struck 17 times in the head with a hammer found in her kitchen near her body. The alarm system in the house had been disabled, the back door had been pried open, the door itself was cracked indicating forced entry. Inside the Seaver's safe, however, police find $40,000 in cash and a very large collection of guns, none of which have been touched. So you have to ask, was it a random attack? A home invasion? It definitely wasn't a burglary gone bad, am I right? The personal nature of this murder scene did not speak to a random attack or a home invasion the rage obvious in the number of times Teresa was bludgeoned, the fact that a hammer had been used as the weapon of choice, this evidence told investigators the murder was very personal. Teresa wasn't raped or sexually assaulted. So whoever broke into the Sievers' home had gone in there for one reason, to kill Teresa Sievers. But the question is why? I, I mean, what's the motive here? A disgruntled patient? some enemy from her past an upset co-worker i mean i know that anything is possible when investigating murder at this early stage you cannot rule anything out mark sievers is still in connecticut with their two children when he hears the news of his wife's murder that's a pretty good alibi we know for certain he didn't do it but let's take a break and we'll get right back to the unbelievable twists in this story So here's the quick and dirty on where we're at. Teresa Seavers is brutally murdered in her Florida home while her husband and kids are 1,200 miles north in Connecticut. When it comes to investigating murders that involve the magnitude of violence that we see here, the marriage is usually the first place to go to, which is what happened in this case. Detectives took a deep dive into Mark and Teresa Seavers' life together.
1: Yeah, and from what I've read, it seems like everyone close to them considered Mark and Teresa to be like the perfect couple.
0: In this case, basically, it was a whirlwind relationship that began in 2003 when Mark Seavers was visiting Florida and he met Teresa. They were married just a short time later on the beach at sunset. Their first child was born that same year. Their friends and relatives said they were so in love. Many thought the marriage was like, you know, Ozzy and Harriet stuff. Ideal. They're living this... Perfect life in Florida with this beautiful house. She's a doctor. I mean, what could go wrong, right? But just like there's no perfect murder, there's no perfect relationship. Months before Teresa's death, Mark started keeping a journal, focused mostly on his marriage, which had become, at least to him, stale, mundane, sexless, and dishonest. He wanted a more active sex life and wasn't getting it. He almost felt like a parasite because Teresa was the sole breadwinner in the family and he was a stay-at-home dad. He had dreams of going to law school, but at 49, Mark was not where he wanted to be in life. According to his journal, Mark's mind was solely occupied by his relationship with Teresa from at least March 2015 up until Teresa's murder in June. So in March, Mark wrote that he was spending very little time with his wife saying, quote, And what little time we do spend together, it's annoying to say the very least. He said she routinely rejected him and he felt very much alone. In another entry, two months later, he wrote, she said sometimes, most of the time she does not feel we're going to make it. And then this quote, it would be nice to share that small level of intimacy with whom I've considered the love of my life. Maybe, just maybe our relationship is already over. Over the course of that spring and into summer, those journal entries became more and more centered on blaming Teresa for being domineering, uninterested in building intimacy, or paying attention to Mark. And he pointed a finger of disunion directly at her. The entries were predominantly negative and quite focused on Mark's needs, wants, and desires. Not how hard Teresa worked Or that she was providing for their family. He he leaves all of that out, right?
1: Right. He's just throwing himself a pity party on every single page. Yeah.
0: Me, 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 me. Until that is just four days before the murder when Mark took a complete 180 and he wrote this. Teresa and I are in a good place. She's been kissing me unsolicited for the past couple of days. But the point here is it's like, boom, he goes from bad to good, just like that. There's got to be a reason, right? And it's not the unsolicited smooches that Teresa's giving him. In hindsight, your wife being murdered such a short time later after dissing her for months, now that seems like a big, huge red flag to me. And yet frustrating journal entries don't prove murder, right? Or bad writing doesn't prove murder. They only prove that you have a troubled and sort of hot and cold marriage, if you believe them. Okay.
1: Okay. Besides Mark, was there anyone else the police looked at as a possible suspect?
0: Within a day or two of the murder, one of Teresa's female employees is questioned. The woman was said to be disgruntled and was planning to resign on the Monday Teresa didn't show up. So the woman claimed Teresa had created a high-stress, hostile work environment that she couldn't function in anymore. On top of that, this same employee had been known to call Teresa a bitch behind her back, even to patients. This sort of unspoken loathing is just what investigators are looking for. Teresa actually had previously said to people around the office that the same employee was bringing bad energy into the office. So they clearly did not like each other at this stage. I guess you could reckon it was very personal between these two women. But was it personal enough to take a hammer and and bash someone in the head 17 times? I don't know. So, the female employee becomes the number one focus of the investigation, of course. But then, about two weeks after the murder, detectives get a tip from a woman in Missouri, which happens to be Mark Seavers' home state. The woman says she has information about the murder of Teresa Seavers. So, investigators fly to Missouri, interview the woman, and she points them to two men Curtis Wayne Wright and Jimmy Ray Rogers. Turns out Curtis Wright is a childhood friend of guess who? Mark Sievers. and had even gone to Teresa's funeral. They were so close, Mark was the best man in Curtis's wedding just two months before the murder. Even more interesting, Mark and Curtis look very similar. And this is kind of weird. Bald, pudgy cheeks, deep-set, dark eyes, nearly identical goatees, and the same round Ben Franklin-style glasses.
1: I know. I looked at photos of them when we were researching this, and it's creepy. It they is. are so incredibly nearly identical. Like, it looks like pictures of the same guy, like two pictures of the same guy. They could be twins, like not just brothers, full-on twins.
0: As detectives follow this new lead, it doesn't take long for the dominoes to fall. These two guys, Curtis Wainwright and Jimmy Ray Rogers, definitely not the sharpest tools in the shed. I, I don't even think they're in the shed. For one, several people placed them in Bonita Springs Florida, the same weekend Teresa was murdered. Second, detectives impound a car the men rented that weekend. And as they comb through the GPS system, they are basically given an actual roadmap of the murder, complete with timestamps and exact places these two imbeciles stopped, got gas, pulled over for snacks, everything. And get this. As the two men begin the 17-hour drive from Missouri to Florida, they enter the address for the Seavers' residence into the GPS.
1: They clearly haven't watched enough
0: Dateline. Forensic Files is like on every channel now, right? You can't get away from Forensic Files, and these guys have not seen like two episodes. I certainly don't think we're looking at a case of criminals who got unlucky in their deception. I just think we're looking at two very stupid and ignorant People. Police believe the two men obviously entered the Sievers home and murdered Teresa Severs. The car's GPS showed how they drove to the closest, Walmart. Investigators then pull the CCTV footage and they watch a video of both men inside the store paying cash for a number of questionable items. A backpack, 30-gallon trash bags, black shoes, black towels, wet wipes, and tools to pick a lock. What gets me is the wet wipes. Yeah,
1: if you're planning on cleaning up a crime scene, I don't think wet wipes are going to do it.
0: You're going to use a hammer on somebody and and then clean it with wet wipes or wipe the door handle or something? I Again, it shows how stupid these guys are. The GPS even shows Curtis picking up Jimmy, driving from Missouri to Bonita Springs directly to the Seavers' front door. These guys... They couldn't have logged more evidence if, if they tried, right? I mean, to be any more obvious, they would have had to filmed it and put it up on social media. That was probably the only thing they could have done to make it more obvious.
1: Back to the big question. Why would these two guys drive to Florida to kill Teresa Savers?
0: That's a very good question. I'll get to that when we return from a quick break. All right, so this is true. Believe it or not, after police find Curtis Wright and Jimmy Rogers' damning digital footprint, they make another discovery. A total of five life insurance policies on Dr. Teresa Seavers, totaling $4 million, listed Mark Seavers as a beneficiary. I say it's true because, really? This guy was thinking about going to law school at one time? Now I know why he didn't. You could not leave behind a more obvious set of breadcrumbs than Mark Severs, Curtis Wright, and Jimmy Rogers did in this case. Law enforcement eventually find Jimmy Rogers' girlfriend who lays out the entire case for them. She said after an initial visit from investigators, Jimmy wanted to go for a drive. Jimmy instructs her to toss a broken cell phone and a blue jumpsuit out the car window into a river he drives by. The girlfriend also says... Jimmy told her he killed Teresa Seavers with a hammer. This, by the way, may be a good time to mention that Jimmy's nickname was the hammer. Oh, come on. You can't make this shit up.
1: Um, it's a little too on the nose.
0: It's a little too on the nail.
1: <laughs> oh, my God. There's no room for dad jokes in this podcast, Phelps.
0: So the girlfriend goes on to tell law enforcement Jimmy said he was supposed to be paid 10 grand from the life insurance to do the job that Curtis Wright was the money man, and Curtis had been promised the money by Mark. I mean, I think we've said this enough, but it's worth saying again. Can a set of murderers actually be more stupid than these three scumbags? At this point, I'd like to bring in a friend of mine to talk about the broader aspects, the more serious aspects of this murder. Dina Saig-Dahl is a lawyer and crime analyst who appears on Dan Abrams' Law and Crime Network, as well as many other shows covering the Sievers case in real time. Dina, thanks for coming on the show.
2: Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it.
0: What I want to talk about is these texts first between Mark and Teresa. And I just want to have my producer read some of that so we can talk about the context.
1: In their text exchanges, Mark Seavers would call Teresa sexy baby and mommy. He often told her he loved her. Teresa would refer to him as, quote, daddy. Teresa Seavers once told her husband he needed, quote, another hot mama. In April 2013, Mark texted, I love you, honey, with all my being. Then, years later, in another exchange, he writes, I wanna take care of you. Teresa did not write back. Then, Mark writes, I guess your lack of response is an answer in and of itself. Teresa responds, Mark, I'm sorry. I'm in the middle of doing things. Then weeks before her death, Mark reminds Teresa in a text that she parked her car in front of her office building. Teresa responds that she was tired of, quote, this kind of helicoptering that makes me crazy. And it shows me that you are more focused on me than you.
0: So, Dina, you covered this case pretty extensively, and I just want to put these texts into context. So what do we have here?
2: It's interesting because I I wish that they had made more of an emphasis on these texts during the trial. They talked a lot about the financial motive that he had to wanting to kill his wife. But these texts show the dysfunction and their relationship. And really what I think is this kind of like abusiveness on his part, this coercive control. I know that you talked about this in one of your other episodes, and I think this was a really good example of it. We see their texts. There's definitely the sexual innuendo of them calling mommy and daddy, them talking about fantasizing with her having a sexual relationship with actually one of her killers, Curtis Wright. But there's also this control that he has as well. Um, Not only this kind of sexual dysfunction, but he's constantly, as she says, helicoptering him and how that leads to him not being able to handle her wanting to divorce him and ultimately him wanting to kill her as a result of it.
0: And do you think part of the texts show him trying to create almost an alibi for not having a motive?
2: You know, I don't know if he was that smart, to be quite honest. <laughs> you know, I mean, when you see the amount of evidence that came out in this trial, they did. Oh, my not God. Do. <laughs> yeah.
0: Oh, my God.
2: So bad they did a really bad job of covering their tracks here i think this was him you know kind of like most abusers don't think they're going to get caught you know i think this was him really so fixated on her so controlling of her finances he controlled her finances even though she was the one that made the money you know controlling over all of what she was doing at any given time I think he felt like he was in the position of power and I don't, I think he thought he was smarter than everyone else and wasn't going to get caught.
0: I mean, yeah, you mentioned how the evidence and what I really kind of focused on a little bit was the GPS showed the killer picking up his friend and then driving from Missouri to Florida to her house, then to the Walmart. It couldn't be any more obvious. So I mean, as someone who covered this case, what struck you most about this case?
2: When I was following this case and analyzing it live, you know, I would refer to it as a a domestic violence case, even though that wasn't how the prosecutors were referring to it. And most of the media was because I've seen so many cases like this, unfortunately, where, you know, sometimes they call it divorce by murder or something like that, where there's either a child custody issue or the woman wants to get a divorce and she ends up dead. There had to have been a domestic violence relationship, even if there wasn't physical abuse in order for him to want to kill her, regardless if there's a child custody issue, regardless if there's a financial issue. But that's just not talked about. You know, they'd already had, Curtis Wright had already taken a plea deal admitting to the murder. He testified at trial. The other person who did the actual killing, Rogers, was already convicted. So by the time Mark Seavers was on trial, it was pretty clear that he was involved. And I wish that they had had a larger conversation about this doesn't just happen unless there had been some sort of abuse in the relationship to begin with.
0: It's always the case, right? I mean, healthy people, healthy marriages don't create dead spouses. And I agree with you that in a lot of these cases, nobody discusses the domestic violence angle, maybe because it's not sexy enough for television, but it is always there. What about the brutality of this murder? I mean, what does that say?
2: You know, it's interesting because they usually say when the more gruesome a murder, the more likely the person knew the victim, that there was some sort of personal passion around it. So according to Curtis Wright, so Curtis Wright and Rogers were the two who actually did the killing. According to Curtis Wright, he hit her three times with a hammer and then Rogers took over and kept on hitting her with a hammer until the point where he had to basically pull him off. If you believe that, you know, Rogers didn't know her at all. So, you know, was that truthful? It's more believable in a way that it would be Curtis Wright because they had a really strange relationship. He was the one who Mark Seavers would have this like fantasy sexual relationship with his wife. There was this weird triangle it's hard to know how much Curtis Wright knew of it. But if he didn't know of it, it's possible there could have been some sort of strange passion, resentment, and, it, and he would have wanted to kind of bludgeon her more. But if you believe him, for some reason, this perfect stranger did this very gruesome murder.
0: And that leads me to what I want to talk about next, because it can't be overlooked. Curtis Wright. Side by side with Mark Sievers, they look identical almost, like twins. And there was a strange relationship there between the two guys. So what does that say?
2: It's interesting. And the fact that Curtis Wright would actually even agree to this, you know, there was this dynamic between the two of them. And the prosecutor had wanted to go into this a little bit more a trial, asking a Curtis Wright what his sexual preferences were, kind of insinuating that there was some sort of maybe crush or something he had on Mark Seavers. He wasn't allowed to go into it by the judge. But you do wonder what this was about, that Mark Seavers was constantly asking his wife how attracted she was to Curtis Wright. And then why Curtis Wright, who had was newly married actually, he was only two months married, would agree to killing somebody and putting himself so at risk. You know, that's not something you're going to say yes to a friend, even if there's money at stake. So there, there's definitely a, a strange dynamic there between the two of them.
0: That is really strange. You get married and two months later, you're killing your best man's wife for him. Yeah. And as you said at the top, they didn't cover their tracks at all. I mean, they had no idea what they were doing.
2: It's funny because that fact that you said about the GPS in the is what stuck out with me, too, because Curtis Wright actually left his cell phone at home during this time, you know, in order probably to not get tracked. And then they rent a car with a GPS, which tells the police everything they know. It even shows them on the security camera at the Walmart and all that kind of stuff. So this was definitely not very good at their job, so to speak here.
0: The map is incredible when you look at it that law enforcement put together, you know, with all the points that they stopped at. Well, thank you. I really appreciate you, you coming on and clarifying some things for me and putting a lot of this into context. I mean, it's one thing to, you know, to talk about a case and a murder, but it, I like bringing someone on who actually covered it at the time to talk about it. So I, I appreciate your time, Dina.
2: Well, thanks so much for having me. It's great talking to you about it.
0: In my experience covering these types of cases, most murder-for-hire cases are the work of extremely arrogant, ignorant people. I mean, it's a crime reeking of hubris, selfishness, and greed. Organized crime aside, murder-for-hire is a guaranteed way to get caught. And because it's a capital felony in any state, it's punishable by the death penalty. It amazes me in most murder-for-hire cases I've written about and researched over the years what people think. They can actually get away with. It's the perfect display, really a textbook act of narcissism. As the investigation continues, police make a surprising discovery. They determined that not one hammer was used in Teresa's murder, but two. They could not locate that second hammer, but it could indicate that both men participated in the murder. Odds are in most murder-for-hire cases, someone talks. You cannot involve two or more people in a murder and expect one of them not to say something.
1: Especially when you have one involving a Tweedledee and Tweedledum.
0: It's usually the first one to talk to law enforcement who gets the break. I've seen murder for hire cases where the actual shooter, the killer, gets hardly a decade in prison for the murder to testify against the people who hired him. So it's kind of worth it for the person who pulled the trigger to talk first. And in the case of Teresa Siever's murder, It was her husband's best friend, Curtis Wright, who opened his mouth. He testified that the oldest motive on record drove the murder of Teresa Severs, that Mark and Teresa were both having affairs and they had major money problems, and Teresa was planning to leave Mark and take custody of the kids. Oh yeah, and it was that $4 million in life insurance money at play if Teresa was dead. In exchange for testifying against Mark Severs and Jimmy Rogers, Curtis Wright cut a deal to plead guilty to second-degree murder and 25 years in prison. Based on Curtis's testimony and, let's say, a motherload of digital evidence, Jimmy Rogers is convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to life. Mark Seavers denied any involvement in the murder and spent three years in prison awaiting trial. He was supported by some family members who believe Curtis Wright acted on his own because he was jealous of Mark. And from that, employed Jimmy Rogers to help him. If guilty, Mark Severs faced the death penalty. It took jurors four hours to bring in a first-degree murder verdict. It would have took me four minutes. During the death penalty phase of his trial, Mark Severs makes the I'm innocent claim they all make. He actually pretends to cry, but his eyes are dry, of course. And this is what he says. Our girls have tragically lost their mommy And now they are about to lose their daddy as well. Judge Bruce Kyle spoke next, matter of fact and firm. Quote, I judge people's actions. I don't judge people's souls. That's for somebody else to do, sir. I'm going to go ahead and adjudicate you guilty on each count, on the first count, first degree murder. It's the order of the court that you be sentenced to death, sir. The judge then denied Mark's request for a new trial. His new attorneys are attempting an appeal, as they all do, and Seaver's case went to the Florida Supreme Court in October 2021. That decision is still pending. It's my guess that the death penalty will be overturned. But we are talking about Florida here, so good luck, Mark.
1: Sources for today's episode come from a news press article, Text Messages Reveal Seavers' Sexually Charged Relationship by Melissa Montoya and Michael Braun, a Naples Daily News article titled, Mark Seavers' Journal Entries Detail Ups, Downs of Marriage Before Teresa Seavers' Killing by Ryan Mills, and Aaron Moriarty's reporting in the 48-hour special, The Plot to Kill Dr. Seavers.
0: Crossing the Line is a production of iHeartRadio. It's executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, and iHeart executive producer, Catherine Law. Special thanks to producer Rose Bachi and EP Christina Everett. Audio engineering, original music, and sound design by Matt Russell. Additional thanks to Will Pearson at iHeartRadio. The series theme, number 444, is written and performed by Thomas Phelps and Tom Mooney. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app,